This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. David Godshall is a landscape architect, gardener, and meta-garden philosopher, making his way with his young family and his Terramoto Landscape Architecture Design Studio team in Los Angeles. David's home garden and his perspective on adventurous gardening and design are featured in Under Western Skies, on which I collaborated with photographer Caitlin Atkinson. The Terramoto team was featured as one of El Decor's A-list of designers in 2021. David joined me from his home and garden, accompanied by Happy Bird Song, to share more on his garden worldview. Welcome, David. I am just really happy to speak with you uh, about these things at this exact time. And I'm really excited to speak with you as well. Thank you very much. And, you know, if I were to ask you your current mission statement at this point in your life, at this point in your work, for your relationship with plants and planted spaces, whether that's personal and at home, or it's also as manifested by Terramoto, what would that mission statement be, David? You know, I just did a funny thing last week where I was looking at our like office profile on our website, and we kind of have a I think manifesto is too strong of a word, but we have kind of a a, few, a series of paragraphs that kind of outline what you're asking. And I actually stared at it and I looked at it and I was like, oh my gosh, this is out of date. And so then I added in a couple sentences that kind of explained that uh, this manifesto or uh, this belief system is allowed to change and evolve at any point in time. So you, your question is kind of timely in that when uh, so I started Terramoto with uh, Terramoto is not just mine. Uh, it's uh, uh, Alan Peroy is my business partner, and Jenny Jones is now a partner in our LA office. And we have a team of about seventeen people at this point, uh, which is really incredible, and um, all incredible humans. Um, and when Alan and I started Terramoto, our um, mission, our kind of guiding principle was a formerly and conceptually adventurous office for landscape architecture. And I would say that that very much still rings true. And I stand by that. And that's like the tag thing on our Instagram. That being said, <laughs> uh, the practice has evolved. We, the team has grown and time has passed and we've got to build a lot of work and we've got to learn a lot in all of this. And so as we get deeper into it, uh, that sentence, the formerly and conceptually adventurous office for landscape architecture still is steadfast, but there's also a bunch of other stuff that's going on too. And a lot of those things have manifest from like kind of becoming increasingly like principled and um, standing up for what mm -hmm. we believe in. Uh, is right. And I believe you're sitting in your garden um, at home uh, with your uh, sort of salt bush or atroplex yeah. hedge right nice, behind you. Nicely identified. <laughs> nicely done. Yeah. Well and it's, done. it's actually one of the beautiful elements in the photography of your garden in Under Western Skies is this beautiful sort of formal element in an urban garden 
created out of a really rugged Western native plant that you see growing on roadside verges and in ditches. And um, it's just a fantastic plant um, mm-hmm. genus. There are several species across the West. But let's go back a little bit. And I'd love for you to share with listeners a little bit more about your earliest influences and those people and plants and places that grew you into a a man and a business partner for whom adventurous landscape architecture and standing up for what you believe in through your landscape architecture in many instances would be an important value. Sure. I'm from Southern California, uh, born and raised. Grew up in the suburbs of Orange County and uh, had a lovely childhood um, that I won't <laughs> dive into too deeply on this. I did uh, my undergraduate education at the uh, UC Santa Barbara, and my major was uh, history of art and architecture. And in that, I started to become aware of the built environment uh, in studying architecture. And I had always had just like a great predilection for art, though not necessarily being compelled to be a fine artist uh, myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've always taken photography and I, I've always taken pictures and photos, uh, but almost in a more amateur sort of a way. And that continues to be kind of part of uh, my and Terramoto's practice to this day. When I finished my undergraduate degree, I uh, was living in Los Angeles, kind of uh, just working jobs and learning. I was learning about construction at that point. And then I just started gardening and I realized that I liked it. And the uh, the confluence of me wanting to do something more uh, while also in realizing this increasing love for gardening while kind of wanting a change of environment uh, brought me to applying to UC Berkeley to get my master's in landscape architecture. Mm-hmm. And I did that. And I went to uh, Berkeley for a three years master's program and then um, graduated and worked for uh, other wonderful offices for a few years before deciding to start my own practice. And uh, to your point about um, making gardens that are like kind of uh, principled, I would perhaps conflate and or blame or uh, give thanks for a childhood in which I listened to a lot of uh, punk rock and hardcore music. And in that musical genre, there's a kind of oftentimes a lot of like accepting no bullshit and doing the right thing and kind of having principles and yeah and kind of a rejection of the mainstream uh in whatever capacity that may be and so I to this day credit perhaps Terramoto's increasingly orientation towards building gardens of like uh principle and integrity to that kind of music and my experience with that music if that makes sense yep it makes some sense, but I think it will make more sense as I <laughs> as I get you to put some tangible descriptions behind sure. those concepts, which are big concepts. And yep. you have a lot of thoughts about how humans and their planting in what are incredibly modified human-generated environments like Los Angeles, what roles... Uh, those people and those plants in those places specifically have to serve in this world. Because it's one thing to have a, a garden of principle and integrity 
in, say, the middle of rural Northern California or rural Utah. It's a different creature altogether to do that in the middle of Los Angeles or another densely built human environment that is so so modified as to be almost unrecognizable um, mm-hmm. to, to what it would have been prior to such human impact. And so I, I kind of want you to unpack a little bit what adventurous means and what integrity means and what principled means in the kinds of gardens that you build for yourself and that you are asked to build by clients. Sure. Uh, and you're actually asking this question at an interesting moment in that I feel like increasingly Terramoto is at a bit of a, is in a bit of a transition moment uh, or at a crossroads uh, in that um, in the early days we needed to stay in business and we needed to build our reputation and uh, we had to just like stay alive and like make mistakes and kind of learn what kind of designers it is that we wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And so uh, to that end, we created like a, a lovely body of work uh, of which I and our team are extremely proud. Um, that being said, as the practice evolves um, as, and as we evolve kind of as humans and individuals and as a team and as the world has changed, uh, which I really believe it radically has changed in the last, I don't know where we want to start. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I don't in know, our lifetime, starting. certainly, Sh- yes. Sure, yes. Uh, that the world has changed, but quite radically and to me uh, rather quickly uh, in both the last, I could say, five years and then also like 24 months, three years. Um, and so with that, um, we're trying to make gardens, uh, our, the projects that we make, we're trying to make increasingly principled. Uh, and when I say principled, what we're increasingly trying to do is create gardens that minimize or like refutes uh, having negative externalities. It's a curious thing to me, like for example, uh, and this works on a variety of levels and this is where it's gonna get a little bit complex and multifaceted, so bear with me. That's good, let's go, yeah. Um, Is that um, it's important to us with uh, increasing alacrity that uh, we need to be making gardens that are more for the insects and wildlife that move through them than the people that use them. It's very rare that I'm home during the day, but I sit here and I'm looking at a white sage that's kind of completely full of bees. And if you think about it, uh, most people, maybe on a weekend, you're lucky if you get to spend two hours or three hours in your garden in a day. And then during the week, we're all running around. And so 95% of the time, your garden exists without you. That coupled with the fact that we live in a time of like kind of ecological collapse and uh, uh, at many levels pairs rather uh, strongly or boldly with the, the with the assertion that we should be making mostly native gardens in that we need to kind of undo and atone for like uh, the sins of generations past. I think Benjamin Vogt calls it making gardens that are, ant- are non-human supremacist. And I think that's like a really lovely way of putting it. So that's like one level that's like kind of we're and we're kind of shifting towards uh, making gardens that abide by kind of those that sort of dogma in one arena in acknowledging like interconnectedness. uh, For example, it's 
becoming increasingly uh, problematic to us as a team that you could also like build a native garden, let's say somewhere in California, and that garden could be built uh, by people who aren't making living wages and who don't have health insurance and are undocumented or whatever it is. So to that end, what we're also trying to do as a team, and we're we're like in the early phases of this, we wrote an article recently that was in Metropolis Magazine called A Land and Labor. Yep. And it's kind of this initiative in which we're, we're trying to uh, decouple predatory labor practices from garden making in that now that Terremoto can kind of dictate the forms of engagement, we can now say to our clients, in addition to building you an ecologically rich garden, it, that garden will also be built by human beings whose labor is being compensated fairly. And these people have health insurance and we're crediting their contribution through the way we photograph the projects and all these things in that it would seem myopic to me to take on the ecological thing without taking on the labor thing. A thousand percent. And I wish we could repeat that about 50 times in our world at this time, David. So yeah. uh, we, we will keep re-emphasizing that important um, disconnect and hypocrisy that is baked into what horticulture, quote unquote, horticulture looks like in mm -hmm. the U.S. I don't think it's just the U.S. I think it's around the, the industrialized world, mm -hmm. um, but it is part and parcel. And, um, and I applaud you. And it is about time that our yeah. industry as a whole understood this layer of our world and worked to address it. Yep. And what's actually doubly fascinating to me as is as we go about doing this is that we can't necessarily control like uh, at Terramoto as landscape architects we can't necessarily uh, meaningfully control like our greater civilization but we are realizing that garden making is kind of civilization design in miniature and so we're really leaning into the idea that we we can if we can start to assert uh, our uh, if we can start to like philanthropically, charitably, like assert our role in all of these different areas that we can actually make gardens that are like profound expressions, like of love and interconnectedness and all these things. And what's exciting, like all that cheesiness aside, um, what's really radical about it is that I feel like these gardens are actually going to also look fundamentally different than all those all gardens that have come in the past that have been perhaps somewhat complicit in these kind of more capitalist modes of design and construction. And so it's actually like thrilling. Uh, we have a few of the projects rolling out in the near future and they look pretty wild. Um, so anyways, I hesitate to say there's never been a more loaded, exciting time to be making gardens, but maybe so. And as you and I are uh, co-believers in the fact that gardens are some of the should be, can be some of the highest expressions of what it is to be human, um, at sure. least for those of us who are called to gardening. So of course they express love and life and yep. interdependence 
And that is not cheesy, uh, although it can be reduced to a platitude. I'll grant you that. Uh, Sorry, sometimes I wonder how woo-woo I sound in all this, but yeah. I think that's one of the things we as gardeners also have to stand up for is that these are powerful spaces. These are powerful agencies and um, and they, they deserve that gravitas and that level of profundity. And you know, I think when you, when you're talking about the moment that you have reached in your maturity as a team and in your thinking, and even from the very beginning where you note that a mission statement needs to be revisited regularly, that it evolves just like we as humans and gardens as spaces and landscapes, you know, mm-hmm. have a succession of, of their liveliness, um, those processes are important to to pay attention to. And um, just as once you understand what, you know, I don't know, industrial farming of chicken is, you can't eat a chicken that's been industrially raised and, and know how unhappy that existence was and have that taste good in your mouth, yep. you know? Yep. And so I can't believe that these gardens you are creating from this different mindset and ethos not only look different but the experience of being in them is happier and healthier in some you know inexpressible and maybe maybe invisible but still very true way i'd agree with all of that this is cultivating place David Godshall is a landscape architect, gardener, and meta-garden philosopher. We will be right back after a break for more of David's garden world view. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. It is such a pleasure to revisit this conversation with David Godshall and to know that we will be hearing from another voice from Terramoto and another garden and gardener featured in Underwestern Skies next week too, Jenny Jones, who will be joining us to speak about another endeavor she's active with called Test Plots. This is the exact time of year, the dog days of summer, with heat and drought and fire season in the West, that the gardens featured in Caitlin Atkinson and my book, Under Western Skies, this is when those gardens really shine. They are gardens and gardeners working so beautifully and respectfully with the specifics and even the extremes of their individual climates, their soils, their hydrology, the biodiversity of their places, and yet they are still crafting the most enticing and soothing and contributing of spaces called gardens. I am excited to be looking at the gardens of underwestern skies from very specific lenses in two upcoming talks that I would love to have you join me for. The first is on Thursday, August 18th, when I will be with the wonderful United Kingdom-based Garden Masterclasses free Thursday chats online and open to all. 
For my Garden Masterclass session, which is one of their Desert Island Garden sessions, I'll be walking attendees through five gardens from Under Western Skies that I would choose to have with me on a desert island, and I will be explaining exactly why. I'll be sharing a lot of Caitlin's gorgeous and insightful photographs and backstories from each of these gardens and gardeners. I really hope you'll join me for that. Then on Thursday, September 15th, I'll be with the California chapter of the APLD's Sacramento District, also online, looking deeply at specifically the California gardens in Under Western Skies. So if you love interesting and ecologically contributing California gardens with strong design, you will love this deep dive. I'll have links to both my Desert Island Gardens offering for Garden Masterclass and the APLD's Eventbrite registration links in this week's show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. If you can't find it or you need more information, you know how to reach me. Send me an email, cultivatingplace at gmail.com. We're back now to our conversation with David Godshall of Terramoto Landscape Architecture Design Studio based in Los Angeles. As we come back, David describes some points and processes from one of Terramoto's newer projects, which are among those he describes as radical gardens of love and interconnectedness. The project that comes to mind is on Museum Way, which is in Mount Washington, and it came to us because we had met the young couple who, whose house it was previously. They used to be my neighbors and we became kind of friendly. And they had previously lived in like a house that was like almost a, like a recently built subdivision. And it was interesting in that though it was kind of a, they, it was a piece of architecture that was like lauded within the architectural community. They always felt uh, completely creatively stifled in that, they lived in a thing that had been recently built and designed and was and was done. And they had they didn't have the ability to like express themselves. And so in a fascinating turn of events, they sold that house and bought a sublime, decrepit bungalow in uh, Mount Washington, which is this kind of fascinating uh, pocket of uh, northeast Los Angeles that almost has a like a bohemian uh cowboy uh like unpermitted architectural vernacular unto itself uh it's kind of this magical real little place and what we, we built a garden that uh was a radical uh it was a radical pairing of old and new in that i think a problem that plagues contemporary landscape architecture air quotes is that uh, most projects wholly destroy the thing that was previously there a, mm. in servitude of the new thing that's coming. Uh, at Terramoto, we increasingly, like resoundingly, take issue with that impulse. And so can, we kind of reconciled and wrestled with the existing conditions, which were these kind of half falling apart walls, and um, but also had their own beauty. It was also a garden that was an exercise in uh, trusting in the laborer in that we kind of knew what we wanted to do 
And we worked with Carmen Orozco who, uh, and his crew, who we worked with a lot on our smaller garden projects. And we came to the site and kind of explained this wall that needed to turn into a stair. And he kind of understood what we wanted to do. And we were standing there like trying to figure it out together. And then he looked at us at a certain moment and he just said, I need you to go away. And we were like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we were like, okay. And we're huge believers in giving builders the latitude to build and embracing the serendipity that usually arises therein when you give uh, laborers trust. And in the subtext to this is kind of making the relationship between the landscape designer and the builder more egalitarian kind of in nature. And so it was the exercise in that. Um, the planting palette was probably about 50 to 60% native. And then we kind of drifted there like away from there. There's no irrigation system. This is a thing that we're tinkering with at Terramoto right now is for all this talk of like plastic poisoning the environment, it's increasingly odd to us that we're throwing plastic everywhere uh, when we make gardens. I think that it's hard when you scale it up to like a really big estate, but increasingly we're trying to figure out how in the, a small to medium-sized residential garden, if the uh, through supplemental hand, hand watering through establishment for the first season or two, a properly designed garden shouldn't really need that much supplemental irrigation beyond like what a person does a little bit seasonally. Mm -hmm. um, and the deep need to always be watered probably speaks to a poorly designed garden. And then also a thing uh, that works on this garden is that the homeowners themselves did a fair amount of the construction uh, of like using old bricks uh, in creating the hardscape for the new kind of iteration of the garden. And then they also maintain the garden, which increasingly we're trying to get clients when we're kind of vetting them. I don't, we don't think that clients necessarily need to do a hundred percent of the garden maintenance, but if it's at, the, at a residential scale, the most successful projects that we come back to are gardened in part by the people who live there. And I think disconnecting that through like uh, the mowing or just through people who come and take care of your garden for you is at the root of the problem. So anyways, I'll stop. I could keep going. <clears throat> I have a couple of questions for you <laughs> yeah, there. Please, and please, one go. is that, one is that dilemma that you just identified. And that is actually not just handing people a garden, but teaching and encouraging them to be gardeners because it changes the relationship they have with that space. And, and I do know people, you know, especially elderly people who are gardeners in their mind and heart, but no longer physical gardeners, but they, they understand uh, the dynamic enough that they, I would call them gardeners, even though they don't, you know, get down on their hands and knees with their trowel or whatever anymore. But Encouraging more people to actually be gardeners uh, changes everything. And it, it goes back to that. There's a wonderful, um, um, you know, saying that the best fertilizer of all is the shadow of the gardener. And mm -hmm. um, I think that that speaks. And it was I've, interesting. I've never heard that. I love that. That's great. And, it's, and it makes sense the minute, you, you know, you start talking about, like, if you are hand-watering your garden, you know exactly who is thirsty and who is not and when they get thirsty and how much they need. And so that was one of my questions in what you just described in this space, this um, decrepit old bungalow that is now um, sort of repurposed 
to some extent and, and recycled and reorganized. Uh, you were talking about plastic in the horticultural industry, and then you went to watering. And I think the connection there was to not have these extensive plastic irrigation systems buried in every garden. Is that what I understood? Yeah, correct. Okay. Yeah. And I, that is a whole topic in and of itself, the, the waste byproducts of the gardening world and how we as gardeners help reduce that with greater knowledge and awareness and different practices. Um, uh, you know, and, and that could mean learning to grow much more from seed. It could be, you know, asking our designers and innovators and inventors to come up with something besides a non-recyclable pony pack, uh, Mm -hmm. and come up with something that is compostable, uh, for us to plant from. Well, and what you're touching on is interesting in that, if we were to, in large part, eliminate complex irrigation systems, as well as kind of require that our that everyone composts, what ends up happening is the garden also ends up then decoupling from uh, the civic infrastructure of our city. And they exist in their own beautiful anarchist state. Uh, but again, back to... Uh, you know, civilizational design and all these sorts of like things where gardens could kind of almost become these autonomous island states. A properly designed garden like is free from like uh, having to like rely on like the city and the infrastructure of the city. And in a time when uh, city infrastructure is already overloaded, uh, as well as like the poetics of that, I don't know, there's something pretty deep there. So um, it's interesting territory. Yeah, it's really interesting territory, and um, it it touches on a, a conversation I had a couple of weeks back with Claire Rattanon in the United Kingdom, and her real issue with this idea of self-sufficiency and how toxic the concept is in many ways. But there is, because what you are talking about in being autonomous and um somewhat independent, at least from these city infrastructures, is not actually being self-sufficient. It is actually leaning back into and reintegrating with the normal uh, seasonal and climatic cycles and patterns that then are healthier and sustainable. So it's not about being self sustaining and autonomous, it is decoupling from a toxic partnership and recoupling with a a healthy integration. And um, so I just don't want any listeners who uh, were as excited about that conversation about the toxicity of the myth of self-sufficiency to to not not to, you know, um, confuse where we are right now in this conversation. So when you went away and your uh, hands-on designers were working in place with this stone and whatever was going to become was something and was going to become something else. And he needed you to go away so that he could work on it and they could work on it. What, what, what came of that? Describe the result when you returned and you went, oh, you got it or something. Yeah, it was incredible. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I don't think I have to not like overly romanticize uh, garden making or this project in particular, but in this, because that trust can go both ways. Uh, yeah. Sometimes you leave leave the guy with 
what you think is clear instructions and you come back and it's not right. But increasingly, as we develop long-term relationships with just a few set of builders in uh, both uh, the Bay Area and in Los Angeles, the more that trust grows. And it's kind of a reason why we're increasingly inclined only to continue working with people who we do have these like deep relationships in that now Carmen and his crew uh, and like JV, uh, JVP, another outfit we work with on here, they can almost read our minds because they know how we like to do it. So in this case, we kind of explained to Carmen and made a crew drawing. And I should I need to give credit. Eric Schmall uh, at this point in the project was leading the design. We gave him like a, some some very general instructions and we came back and he had pulled it off more beautifully than we ever had even thought it ourselves. Uh, so and I think that speaks to the artistry and sophistication and capability of Carmen and his crew, basically. Okay, now describe what it was. Oh, uh, I can send you pictures. Oh, I'll send you pictures. No, 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 no. Use your words. <laughs> basically, what we did is uh, a zoo rock. You know, you, you see it in Los Angeles because our town is, <laughs> is a mess. But sometimes, like, on failing bedrock hillsides, the way they stabilize it, is by basically spraying concrete on these uh, these like falling bedrock hillsides, and it's kind of beautiful and it's in its own dystopian way. Yeah. And so this hillside had like a zoo rock wall that was half falling apart, but and but we needed to stabilize it. So, but the moment you get a structural engineer involved in a project like this, they would have the project would have suddenly cost half a million dollars. It never would have happened. It, it just wasn't. It wasn't in the cards. Uh, so what we did is we actually used the dumb civil engineering, like stackable block wall, which I was like schooled and in, in the places that I worked like previously, like it would be uh, anathema to use a building material like this, like in a refined, elegant way. And along the many, along the many through lines of Terremoto uh, rejecting the past that has been given to us, we kind of were like, no, we're going to use this cost-effective, uh, structurally sound, uh, dumb civil engineering building unit in the most refined way possible. Uh, you see them, uh, Jennifer, like along freeways sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know exactly you know, what you're talking uh, about. Yeah. Yeah. So we did that, but then uh, Carmen did this almost like MC, MC Escher-esque thing where the wall then like uh, turns into the stair in this kind of interesting uh, I don't even know what the term for it is. It's like uh, delaminating or something like that. Like the, the wall becomes the stair and I can send you images and you'll be like, oh, I get it. And so <laughs> it was about using that uh, cost-effective building unit in the most beautiful possible way. Um, and Car Carmen did it. This is Cultivating Place. David Godshall is a landscape architect, gardener, and meta-garden philosopher. We'll be right back after a break for more of his garden world view. Stay with us. Hey 
Hey, it's Jennifer. Thinking out loud this week, I wanted to give you guys an update on upcoming interviews and how they work and how I think about them. I know that many of you have reached out to me with suggestions for interview guests, and I want you to know that I always appreciate these. And so if you don't hear that guest immediately on Cultivating Place, please know that my queue is long and there is time. So don't give up hope. Also, in the last year, several of you have suggested that I invite the writer and thinker Maria Popova as an excellent interview possibility, and I wanted to share my experience in inviting her with you. I was able to reach out to Maria as I, too, enjoy her work deeply, and I'm expanded by it each time I have the opportunity to sink into it and let it sink into me. After several back and forths with Maria over email, she very kindly and graciously declined my offer of an interview due to philosophical reasons of her own, reasons of privacy and priority, and the importance of maintaining her own focus. I have such admiration for this response. And while I am of course disappointed not to interview her and not fulfill your hopes of hearing these two voices you enjoy, mine and Maria's, together in conversation, I applaud her. If you're not familiar with her work, formerly known as Brain Pickings and now known as The Marginalian, check her out. I will give a link on the show notes under the podcast tab in my Thinking Out Loud section on Cultivating Place this week. I know you will particularly enjoy those moments when Maria's work glosses the pleasures and powers of the garden, the gardener, and gardening as important philosophical, existential, environmental, and sociological signifiers in our world. Look her up. Let me know what you think. I'll be interested. Maria's considered response to me made me think a lot more deeply about my own place and my own voice and focus and the importance of protecting it. Many of you will have noticed that I've not written an official A View From Here newsletter in some time. I have also significantly dialed back my activity on Instagram, sticking to two or three posts a week, liking and commenting on the feeds I love and learn from, but otherwise not doom scrolling. I've been a little confused myself about this seeming contradiction on my part. And Maria's response to me clarified and reminded me of this truth. We cannot speak to all the people in all of the places, in all of the ways, all of the time. Not and remain focused. Not and remain healthy. The most important place and space in which I want my voice to be the strongest and heard with the greatest conviction and care is right here in these podcast breaks with you all, and in person speaking with groups small and large across the country. That's where I choose to focus and cleave to my own mission of engaging, empowering, encouraging, and I hope energizing gardeners around the world to embrace your fullest agency and joy for growing the change we all want to see in this world. Our gardens can and should be durable 
beautiful bridges and ongoing invitations. They can and must provide refuge for ourselves, our families, the biodiversities of our communities and spaces. When you need or want to hear from me, you all know this is where you will find me and my voice every week. Keep growing, gardeners. We're back now to our conversation with landscape architect, gardener, and thinker David Godshall of Terremoto Landscape Architecture Design Studio LA. As we come back, David explores some of his own horticultural goals in his home garden and in Terremoto's overall design work. Left to our own devices now, our gardens kind of skew anywhere between like 50 to 100% native, and I'd like to see that ramp up over the coming years to more like 70 to 100% native. And the reason for that is they're awesome. I feel like for your demographic or uh, audience, I may be preaching to the choir, but Mm -hmm. uh, they're plants that need no supplemental irrigation once established. And they have evolved to provide habitat for the insects and birds and animals and lizards that uh, live that are of this place on the earth and so are there magic um in many ways Mm -hmm. um they come with an aesthetic and texture and seasonality that uh perhaps contemporary mainstream notions of beauty don't necessarily pair with incredibly well but again uh changes upon us and i think the I think the world of gardening is kind of ready uh, for like for a sea change. And I th- I'm excited like for the future in that regard. What I also and I was having a conversation with a young man uh, a few days ago as we were walking around uh, the neighborhood around our office and that I, I'm also like. Uh, I feel like inc- the what I've been kind of describing to you about all these like kind of rules that we apply to the museum way projects are kind of dogmatic and it's a funny thing in that I've always tried to position Terremoto to be relatively anti-dogmatic. The moment we think we know a thing, I also think we should then question that belief. Uh, I, th- I think it's important because uh, <laughs> I've seen yes. too many offices that kind of create a pedigree or like a style and then they just cruise on that style forever. And though there's, I have space, there's space in the world for uh, practitioners of that sort of uh Ilk, uh, that's not really like what Terramoto is interested in. Um, but dogma aside, um, I also think that it's, it, I want to make it okay for there to be some sort of expression outside of native plants only within gardens, simply because we are also a nation and we are a nation and a state and cities of immigrants. And historically speaking, uh, people bring their garden making practices and their garden making cultures with them when they come to new places. And I would hate to sound like a xenophobe and be like, you can only plant Southern California native plants in Los Angeles only. And I think it's important we also make room for cultural expression and these geographies and histories. And actually, there's oftentimes great energy and beauty when uh, the, when those sorts of more culturally historical uh, plants bump shoulders with Artemisia and Buckwheat and uh, Baccarus and those sorts of things. And so, um, yeah, I kind of, I digress, but that's kind of, 
I'm, I'm trying, I still think you can make like a really deeply ecologically rich garden while also giving room in the planting for cultural expression as well. And, and you describe this really beautifully and, and vividly in our conversation for Under Western Skies when you are talking about um, a large tree at the entrance to your garden, a, a beautiful old jacaranda. And, and the way you expressed it to me at the time was that it would be, you know, a, a tragedy born of arrogance yep. and, uh, you know, self-righteousness uh, if you were to remove that tree because it wasn't native. And and I, I think this is somehow related to the idea of many people's approach to a, a, a new home garden being to remove everything that was there and, and treat it like a blank slate. And it, it sort of overlays with our larger cultural you know, controversial conversation about erasure and appropriation and, and, and mm-hmm. cancel culture. Likewise, that somewhere yep, in totally. there is this idea of this, you know, of, of layering with more nuance and more thoughtfulness and uh, less just, it, it, we need gentler and more refined tools uh, as opposed to just sledgehammers. Yep. The world isn't black and white. No. Uh, there's all these gradients in between. And so I think it's an exciting time to be making gardens for all these, all these reasons. reasons. Yeah. and Because all these things are interconnected, yeah. um, what you're saying. Yeah, which is fascinating. And, and so a couple of questions I have for you uh, as a person working on both a personal and philosophical level, but also on a commercial scale level. When you look at what I what I gather from you and and from my own experience is this real hunger right now, which is creating this excitement in our horticultural world, this real hunger for this this newer slash older way, this this sea change of how we approach gardens and horticulture as both people and um, you know species on the planet. How how are you navigating some of the changes that we know need to come for us to reach this next level more effectively? And and by that, I mean, um, how do we address the issue of plastics and disposables? How do we address the issue of getting good native plants into the, um, you know, industrial supply chain without destroying those plants while we're doing it? Those are two questions I have. Um, Sure. Can I, I'm going to answer your question in a roundabout sort of way. Yeah, of course. Okay. Um, uh, But you're kind of like asking like, uh, how do like uh, these things that garden people are already sensing and this like sea change, like uh, is what you're asking, then how do we execute on it? And what's the ne- next step kind of? Mm-hmm. Especially in that transition moment, right? Because we're in this limbo where we want something, but the infrastructure for that something isn't yet fully built. Sure. It's a good question. Um, so I, I can only a- answer it like on behalf of, of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I can answer it on two levels because there's actually uh, the business model kind of uh, falls in line to it as well. But um, 
in these heart to hearts that we're having as a team and in uh, the realization that we want to be making only gardens that kind of abide by these principles, it'll take us three to five years to get to the point where we then only take on projects that uh, abide by these kind of principles and ethics that I've kind of like stated previously in the conversation. Uh, We can't snap, we can't snap our fingers and have it there. Um, And it's also complicated and we're figuring this out as an office in that there's also, uh, I haven't really touched on them yet, but there's also uncomfortable truths uh, that uh, will happen uh, in this, this sort of transition in that uh, I would argue uh, this is probably a thing that will be unpopular to hear, um, but I would argue that moving forward, uh, it's mostly inappropriate for single family homes to be building new swimming pools, for example. Uh, I say that based on uh, what concrete, uh, the, the incredibly negative impact that uh, concrete has in terms of climate change, um, and they should simply be amenities of the commons for all these different reasons. So, but then that's a that uh, tough to swallow pill uh, as an office, we kind of were having this conversation a week and a half ago, and we all acknowledged that's not going to be something that we can snap our fingers and make that true. Also, in that our business model at Terramoto, I would say maybe a quarter to a third of our projects at present are projects that involve ground up swimming pools. So, how how do we make this transition, and how do we like move forward? And I also want to like be uh, quite explicit about the fact that. Part of this isn't like blaming anybody who has a swimming pool in their backyard. Like the past is the past. That's like fine. What this is about is like moving forward. Um, but in as I very very uh, very circumstantially make my way back towards answering your question, what I would also offer is that um, Terramoto is also in this weird position right now in that uh, we are we are a youngish firm with a a disproportionately large, I don't know if disproportionately large is the right word, but with a uh, large like Instagram following, uh, we were getting published, uh, we're on the 8100, we're kind of like these these conventional and or emerging barometers of success, like for whatever reason, uh, we have like kind of gotten a few of those things. We also are of, uh, I'm personally, and probably partially our team, but uh, I'm somewhat self-conflicted about the fact, about that fact, in that I think, generally speaking, though it's been good for Terramoto as a business, social media is actually like, uh, in large part, a very negative presence upon human uh, interaction these days. Um, And also, I'm a little bit, it's a little bit tough, like with being renowned by like these uh, more higher end magazines, um, is uh, somewhat uh, tough as well, uh, simply because I sometimes feel like those magazines champion excess and living beyond your means uh, and living in kind of palatial houses in a way that I kind of think increasingly is no longer appropriate, uh, which is part of the reason why I loved your book, your and Caitlin's book so much, because, I mean, you had a few outliers like the Noguchi Garden, which doesn't even like uh, necessarily qualify, but <laughs> in large part, I think you were showing gardens that uh, championed modesty and ecological appropriateness and living within your means and how beautiful that can be. So my long answer to your question is that all that Terramoto can do right now is increasingly champion projects that uh, 
show the ravishing beauty of building these forward thinking gardens and living within your means and building gardens that are whole uh, in respecting the laborer and the insect and the site and all these things. So that's kind of like, it's our hope that by being the hot young thing, but then actually also being like, here's the future and the future looks like wildly different than like what we were like kind of uh, championing as like beautiful gardens 20 years ago that we can maybe help be an accelerant uh, onto that change. Does that answer your question in a, a roundabout yeah. way? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When you put all those things together, right, us being in this uh, liminal moment, headed towards, in many ways, I, I hope and I think, a, a future that looks better, uh, at least on, on this exact plane, Um what would you say for you personally, you know, with, with your own home garden, with your work, with your l- small children, with your dog, with your, your joy of, of life, David, what, what is your sort of measure of success for this work in your life? Um, ooh, that's a heavy one, Jennifer. Uh, what is my measure of success? Uh, my measure of success would be to continue this practice and evolve this practice of people uh, and the people who are involved in this practice continue get to get to kind of develop uh, in both independently and as part, like this gets into our business model, but we run a relatively non-hierarchical office um, where we give people a lot of autonomy. So I guess what I would say is what would be my measure of success? If Terramoto can t- continue to build incredibly good gardens that uh, respond increasingly to um, like uh, ecological and uh, labor ethic and uh, like whole garden making, and while doing so continue to uh, pay everyone who works at Terramoto well and increasingly well uh, so that they're not worried about money and I'm not worried about money like increasingly uh, and continue to evolve the practice and keep it like weird and do it on our own terms um, and not uh, not do projects that comply by anybody uh, by anybody else's standards of success um, is that a, is that kind of an answer I think it's a great answer to run a beautiful business, I, I think, is the idea. Because I'm actually in all this uh, kind of super uh, environmentally focused sort of uh, optimism that I have. I also want to make it clear that it's a business and I'm like actually very pro-business. I just think businesses can start doing better business. Um, and that's like, that's kind of, as Terramoto, that's one of the ways we change the world is we just like, as a bit, as a business in terms of what we produce, and in terms of how we do it internally and in terms of how we pay our staff and treat our staff uh, to run a beautiful business would be uh, my metric of success. Is there anything you would like to add as to the importance and dynamic nature of these things in our world right now? Um, is there anything I want to add? I would just encourage people to start gardening. Honestly, uh, and I know that your uh, audience is 
probably in large part uh, gardens more than uh, the typical demographics of like the United States per se. But um, I don't know. Uh, maybe this like uh, this next phase of America and stage of America could start from gardeners. Uh, it's totally possible. Uh, someone needs to lead the way, and I think within gardening so much of the solutions to the to the things that are failing us actually like exist inherently in the garden and in the process of garden making that if more people gardened it would be great for our country and the world i so appreciate and um uh, concur with that and I think it's us who are leading the way and and should be as gardeners ourselves listeners and uh, you and I included in that we and I just thank you very much for your time today and your heart in this world and and your leadership thank you and thank you for all that you do Get, getting the good word out there uh, it's that's incredibly important as well. It, it sincerely is, Jennifer. David Godshall is a landscape architect. He is a co-founder and partner in Terramoto Landscape Architecture Design Studio LA. David's home garden and his perspective on adventurous, ethical gardening and design are featured in Under Western Skies, on which I collaborated with photographer Caitlin Atkinson. David's partner in Terramoto, LA, Jenny Jones, and her garden are also featured in the book. The Terramoto team was featured as one of El Decor's A list of designers in 2021. To read the chapter on David and his family home garden in Under Western Skies and see Caitlin Atkinson's stunning images of the garden, make sure to check out this week's show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com, where you can also subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Listen in again next week when we have a trifecta of Jennifers talking about Test Plot, an ongoing experiment in community-based ecological restoration. Jenny Jones and Jen Toy share how Test Plot's purpose is to celebrate the labor involved in land care and to build a stronger land ethic, starting in their community of Los Angeles, California, but with an eye far beyond that. Test plots are open to all, and they invite us all to visit and get involved. Join us again next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with tech and web support by Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. For more information and many beautiful images of David Godshall's Los Angeles Garden and the work of Terramoto, check out this week's show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.